And so we're going to look at Philippians chapter 3, this whole chapter. I love this book. I've really enjoyed this study. And if I were to divide up this chapter into kind of two main points, um, I would say verses 1 through 11, sort of Paul is addressing the question of where is your confidence? Where is your confidence? And then verses 12 through 21, he addresses the question, where is your focus? So where is your confidence? Where is your focus? So we're going to divide up the study that way. I'm going to read the first 11 verses, and then we'll go back and talk about that, and then we'll look at the last half of the chapter. So let's start Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead." Okay, so let's go back. Verse 1. Where is your confidence? And if I were to divide that up even further, you'll see the first point on your sheet there. Uh, I think we see it in the first three verses. Paul addresses the danger of religious legalism. And when I say legalism in this context, I don't mean uh, maybe someone who has more rules than you. I mean somebody who thinks that by those rules, they're somehow going to gain salvation. Okay, so make sure you have that distinction in your, in your mind, the danger of religious legalism. So Paul starts out, finally. And you may be saying, well, I mean, he still has, what, two more chapters, right? A typical preacher thing to do, right? In conclusion, here's 20 more minutes, right? Finally. But he says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Paul's going to come back to this in the next chapter, his famous... Uh, chapter 4, verse 4, where he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And he says, again, I will say rejoice. Uh, rejoice in the Lord. For Paul, and we see this throughout his epistles, you know, joy is something that we do more than it's something that we feel. That's how he could say, I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be exalted. I know how to be abased. I've suffered loss and hunger and all these things. He can say, I can have joy. That's why when he founded this church, when he was in Philippi for the first time and was in jail at midnight singing to the Lord. Because Paul, for him, 
His joy was not dependent on his circumstances. His joy was not dependent on how things were going in his life because his joy, as he says here, was in the Lord. And the Lord's the one who never changes, who never fails, who never falters. And so Paul is is reminding us, and he'll remind us again and again, to find your joy in the Lord. Whatever you're looking for to give you joy, let that be the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. But now he's going to give them some instructions, and he's going to say, look, to write the same things to you, meaning, I've said this to you before, right? You ever feel like you're repeating yourself sometimes, right? Look, I've said this to you before, but he says, it's no trouble for me. It's safe for you. Warnings are good for you. Repetition is good for you. And what he's going to say here, he's going to be really emphatic. He's going to continue repeating this phrase, look out, look out. So you might maybe uh, translate that as beware. Or, or pay attention, look out for the dogs. What's he mean, dogs, here? Are you a dog person? Oh, my wife is a dog person. Uh, look out for the dogs. He's not talking about puppies, okay? He's talking about um, dogs. And this time, a lot of times in the first century, you'd see these wild, like, packs of dogs that would go around as scavengers. They'd eat garbage. They'd occasionally attack people. They were despised. In fact, Jews at that time, a lot of the times, referred to Gentiles as dogs. Even, remember, there's a a story in the book of Mark where Jesus is talking with a Gentile woman, and she says, you know, even even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the table. So it was a common thing for Jews at that time to just refer to Gentiles as dogs. But, remember, what's happening here in Philippians is there's this group called the Judaizers, this group that were trying to teach that, you know, yes, it's good for you to have faith in Christ, but we need you to be circumcised, we need you to follow these Jewish rules. And so Paul here is saying, look out for the dogs, because Christ has reversed things. It's the Judaizers now who are outside this covenant community. They're the ones who are supposed to be regarded as Gentiles. This is Christ reversing how things would be. And he, he did this all throughout his ministry, right? He said strange things like the last will be first, right? Dead people will, will become alive. Sinners will become saints. Christ continued to reverse things, and here he's saying the same thing. These Judaizers, these people that are trying to make you more Jewish than Christian? He goes, look out for them. They're the dogs. They're the ones that are outside this community. But he he does more than that. He calls them evildoers next. Look out for the evildoers. This is kind of an ironic term. Because remember, these are people who prided themselves on, on what? Their good works, right? So he's saying not only are they not good works, but they're evil works. They're evil people doing evil deeds. And then he says, those who mutilate the flesh. This is is Paul, graphically speaking here. Again, the Judaizers, for them, their greatest source of pride was circumcision. And Paul is here saying, you know what, you've turned this into nothing more than a pagan ritual. You've elevated the act above any spiritual significance that went along with it. Because circumcision is meaningless if it doesn't reflect a transformed heart. That's what Paul would say in 
in Romans. Paul was writing in Romans chapter 2, and he says, A Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. So Paul is here saying, these Judaizers that are trying to push their, their Jewish rules and regulations on you, look out for these dogs, look out for these evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. In contrast, verse 3, he says, for we, this is an emphatic distinction, for we are the circumcision. Now what Paul is talking about here is not a physical distinction, he's talking about a spiritual one, right? Because both these groups that he's talking about were circumcised people. He's saying we are the circumcision. What makes us different? He's given us marks of a false religion here. Now, he's going to give us marks of a true religion. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. This brings to mind Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well, John 4, where he says, you know, worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Our worship is by the Spirit of God. There's a, a phrase that some people like to use to say, you know, especially for, for worship leaders, right? You really, really know how to usher people into God's presence. Or that person really ushered me into God's presence. And man, we've got to be so careful with that because the only person who ushers us into the presence of God is Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, right? It's his blood that makes us able to go into his presence. It's not any song. It's not any note on the piano or the guitar. It's Jesus. They worship by the Spirit of God and they glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We see this phrase, glory in Christ Jesus, we see it in contrast to the phrase, put no confidence in the flesh, right? We, we boast in Jesus. Our confidence is not in our flesh. Our confidence is not in ourselves. Our confidence, our glory, our boasting is in Christ Jesus. So we see the dangers of religious legalism. Let's look at the next few verses and look at the worthlessness of human achievements. These Judaizers would, would make it a habit of telling everyone their, all of their qualifications, right? You know, however many letters they had behind their name, they made sure you knew all the letters that were behind their name, right? And that's, what, that's what the Judaizers did. And so now Paul is going to point to the worthlessness of those things. Let's look at what he does. Verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Why? Look at verse 5. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. So this is according to the law, right? That's what the law required. Paul says, yep, that was me. Now, Whatever happens to you when you're eight days old is obviously outside of your control, right? So some of these things that he's pointing to are just natural advantages that Paul had. He was born into a Jewish family. He's going to talk more about that. He was of the people of Israel, meaning he was born a Jew. He wasn't like a convert. Back then, you know, you could be a Gentile and could convert to Judaism. He said, no, that's not me. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was born of the nation of Israel. I was a Jew. But more than that, he's going to get even more specific. Not only was he just a Jew in general, he was of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, we've got to think back to the Old Testament to think why, why was this significant? Why did it matter? You remember when uh, Solomon had a stupid son, right, who made a bad decision, 
and Israel was divided. Ten tribes went to the north. Two tribes stayed there in Jerusalem. It was the tribe of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only tribe that remained faithful to Judah. The first king of Israel, King Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin. Probably the person that that Paul was named after. Remember, his name was Saul. It was changed to Paul. So he was not only Jewish, but he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So this is something to be admired and respected. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know, maybe if if we were talking about that in, in Christian terms, we would say, you know, my parents were Christians, my grandparents were Christians, my great grand all all of my history is Christians, right? We grew up in church. We were here every time the doors are open. That's kind of the thing Paul's saying here. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Now those are natural advantages. Again, none of those things that I just mentioned, Paul didn't achieve them of his own efforts. That was just how he was born. But what we're going to move to now is some of the things that Paul did on his own. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. So to to be a Pharisee means to get to the highest level of legalistic Judaism. The people that were experts of the law, that knew the law inside and out. He says, I was a Pharisee. He says, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. He was so zealous that people follow the law that he was willing to persecute anybody I mean, and not just hurt them, kill them, right? Persecute anyone who went against the law. Then he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. So Paul's not here saying that he was sinless. But he was saying, you know, if you look at my life from the outside, you're never going to be able to say anything bad about the way that I live. You're never going to see me break the Sabbath. You're never going to see me eat something I'm not supposed to eat. You're never going to see me hang out with people that I'm not supposed to hang out with. He upheld the law every single day. And he lists all those things, and he gets, he's building this case to say, you know, is this the kind of righteousness that God requires? Is this what, what we need? Is this what you need? Because, see, the problem with legalism is it leads to one of two places. It leads to either pride, where you can say, you know, I'm pretty good, right? I've got it all together. Or it leads to despair for most of us, right? Because you're like, I can't do this. How can anybody maintain all these rules? And you just feel the weight of this just pouring down on you. Legalism always will lead to pride or to despair. And so Paul says in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is an interesting verse because the word that he uses for gain is plural. So it's like you heard him list all those things. And if you can picture like a scale in your mind, it's like Paul is adding all those things onto the scale, right? Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, a persecutor, blameless. And he's listing all these things and putting them up. But the word loss is singular. 
And so he's like, all these things, all, all these things that I just mentioned, they really just added to my debt. I count them as, as loss. They didn't do anything for me. They didn't give me any righteousness. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Uh, Rock of Ages is one of my favorite hymns. I love the line in Rock of Ages. He says, Foul I too, the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. He said, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. And that's what Paul is realizing here. Whatever gain I had, all these things, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he continues, Indeed, I count everything as loss. So verse 7, he's speaking past tense. All of that stuff in the past, I counted, past tense, as loss. But then in verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss. Meaning, I'm not looking back there to what I did, the achievements that I've earned to, to give me confidence to stand before Christ. And he's saying, you know what? And as I look ahead and standing right where I am today, there's nothing that I'm going to do that's going to give me righteousness. There's nothing that I'm going to do that's going to give me confidence before Christ. Both past and present tense, he says, it's loss. Why? Verse 8, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And he's saying, knowing Christ eclipses everything. We sang the song, knowing you. Paul doesn't have any regrets about the things that he lost. You know, when you hear him say, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul's not saying that with like a twinge of regret to say, you know what, I still kind of wish I was a Pharisee, you know? (laughs) He's not regretting that because what he's saying is the surpassing worth, knowing Christ eclipses all that. Nothing compares to it. And I love when he talks about Christ, he gets personal and he says, Christ Jesus, my Lord. That's what when Jesus said, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd, I know my own, my own know me. For all of these things, these human achievements are worthless. But let's continue. For his sake, for Christ Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And he said, I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish. Rubbish is a, is a harsh word. Rubbish, you could translate it as refuse, street filth, it's all of those things. That's what I count. It's what the prophet Isaiah said, right? All of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. But notice, notice what Paul's saying here. In order that I may gain Christ. Christ is the treasure. Christ is the reward. And have a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ, because this is the kind of righteousness that God requires. This is the kind of righteousness that gives us confidence before Christ. Look what he says here uh, in verses 10 and 11. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. 
that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. I love how Paul writes this verse uh, 10 because he's looking in reverse, right? You'd think if you were talking about Christ, you'd say that I may know him, his perfect life and his death and resurrection. That's normally how we talk about it. Paul's looking back this way and he said that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, may share his sufferings. For Christ, death preceded resurrection. We are already dead. We find out in places like Ephesians 2, right? We're dead in our sins. So resurrection comes first. New life comes first. And then in the power of that resurrection, we share in the suffering of Christ. Being found in Christ means experiencing this this new life that Christ provides. We say it when we baptize people, right? Buried with him, baptism into his death, raised to walk in newness of life. That comes right from Romans chapter 6. But this is a reminder to us, and it was a reminder to the church there at Philippi, that growth in Christ doesn't come without pain, right? He doesn't leave out the part about suffering. Knowing Christ means experiencing death. That's what Christ said, take up your cross and follow me. You know, we can't pick and choose things when it comes to the Bible. We read a passage like this, and we get to verse 10, and we're like, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection. We're like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I want to experience that, right? And then it's like, ooh, this may share his sufferings part. Not sure, not sure how I feel about that. None of, us, none of us like that message. But notice Paul's tone in verse 11. He said that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Some people might read this and say, well, this is, this is kind of odd, right? Was Paul, was Paul uncertain about his, his eternal destiny? He says, like, by any means possible? I think we can think about it a couple ways. I think it can be... Uh, a statement that kind of expresses humility and wonder. Something like, you know, how could anybody like me ever receive such blessings? Right? It could be a statement like that. But I think maybe a better way to think about it is just, you know what? Paul's saying, I know the end, but I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. So it's like the, the idea of, I don't know about tomorrow, but I know who holds tomorrow. Saying, you know, I don't, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what kind of maybe terrible, tragic things might happen. I don't know what kind of incredible victories that I might see. But he's saying, by any means possible, through it all, Christ remains the same. Christ is going to be good. He's going to be faithful no matter what. This is also uh, the prophet Isaiah. In a great passage, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 2. He reminded Israel of this. He said, when you walk through the waters, I will be with you. Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. He doesn't say, you know what? You're not going to get to the waters. You're not going to get to the fire. I'm just going to save you from all that. He goes, no, when you're you're walking through the waters, I'm going to be walking there with you. When you're walking through the fire, I'm walking through the fire with you. So Paul is here saying, by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not because of anything that I've done, not because of anything that I achieved, not because of any natural advantages that I might have, but because I have been found in Christ and have a righteousness that's His. What a great 
What a great thing. What a great reason to rejoice in the Lord. But now we're going to transition. We're going to move to the last half of this chapter. We've been talking about where our confidence is. Is your confidence in yourself, your flesh, or is your confidence in Christ? But now we need to see where our focus is. So let's read verses 12 through 21, and then we'll talk about it. He says, Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. We go back to the beginning of this passage, verse 12, and Paul keeps emphasizing this fact. Hey, not that I've already attained this, right? He says it in verse 12, not that I've already obtained this. He says, or am already perfect. Verse 13, I do not consider that I have made it my own. He continues reminding them, look, I'm not perfect. I'm still in process. It's like that song we used to sing as kids, right? He's still working on me to make me what I ought to be. You know, it's one thing about spiritual maturity that I think sometimes we can forget. You know, I think we have this idea that the more spiritually mature you are, the less you have to, to worry about sin, right? But really, it works the opposite, and it's strange. And so that's why Paul, this, this preacher that, like, unparalleled, right? No one has ever been a preacher like Paul. No one's ever been a church planner like Paul. No one has ever written as much in the Bible as Paul. And that's why Paul could say something like, man, it's like the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I, I don't want to do, those are the things that I do. And you're like, Paul, how can you say something like that, right? Because Paul, the closer you get to Christ and, and the more holy you become, the more aware you become of the sin that still exists, right? It's not like a, you know, I'm so much better than you all, right? It, it's the opposite. It's the spiritually mature person is the one who is, is most dependent on the Lord, who is most aware of his need for Christ. So Paul's saying, I haven't gotten there. And because of that, here's what I do. I press on. He uses that phrase in verse 12. He uses it in verse 14. Paul liked to use these athletic metaphors, right? He said a lot of things. 1 Corinthians, he says... Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. He said, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. You know, you think of a boxer, you know, you want to hit the target. 
He's like, I don't want to be a boxer that's just hitting the air. And then, of course, famous passage, 2 Timothy chapter 4, where he tells Timothy, I have fought the good fight. It's a reminder that this growth in Christ requires determination and perseverance, that it won't just happen naturally, that it won't happen without any effort. It requires effort. And look at his focus. He says, I do not consider that I have made it my own, verse 13, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. Again, this, this word that has all this work <laughs> wrapped up in it, right? All this effort straining forward to what lies ahead. I was reminded as I was studying this of a clip that I had seen a few years ago. So I looked it up today to be reminded of it. Um, but you, so you may remember this. It was a, uh, some kind of NCAA a race, a long race, like a 3,000-meter run. 2015, I think this happened. And this runner from Oregon was coming down the back stretch. And he saw himself up on the big screen, and he was out there in front. And as he's running, he starts kind of slowing down. And he even starts, you know, doing that. He wants the crowd, like, hey, cheer for me. And there's this guy who's in second place who's just focused on the finish line. And he's running and running and running. And it's not till it's too late that the guy who's in first place realizes, oh, my goodness, there's somebody right here. He passes him at the finish line. The, the final score had him losing by a tenth of a second. He had it wrapped up. If he would have just finished, he would have run, won easily. But he slowed down. And he started celebrating. He lost his focus. And Paul is here saying, look, there's a lot of good things, but there's only one great thing. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. Now, for Paul, that includes both good things and bad things, right? Paul had a lot to boast about. He boasted about, about some of it here. But even after Christ saved him and radically changed him, he could still boast about a lot of things, right? And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians where he does that, talking about God giving him this thorn in the flesh. He had incredible visions, incredible revelations. He had an incredible relationship with, with the Lord. Paul had a lot of things to boast about, but he's saying, forgetting what lies behind, not just my achievements, but also my failures. Forgetting the sin. Forgetting those things. Victories and defeats. Literally, just disregard it. Forgetting those things and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on, verse 14, toward the goal for the prize of, of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The upward call of God. This is God's calling of salvation. It's not like a calling that we would do, right? Like, hey, I'm going I'm to call you. I'm going to see if you're home. This is, this is God's calling. This is what, what he's talking about in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, where he says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified and those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's a definite call. The upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And then 
Let me point your attention to verses 15 and 16, because this is something that I had not ever been aware of until I was studying this passage. Um, Maybe if you did, you can tell me about it afterwards. But verse 15, Paul says, Let those of us who are mature think this way. In other words, the way that he's been talking, right? What he said previously up to this point. Let those of us who are mature think this way. But then he says this, And if in anything you think otherwise, God will will reveal that also to you. I want you to notice Paul's grace in this. Notice Paul's patience, where he says, look, I believe this is how we should think. But if you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you. It's not for me to say, you are a heretic, right? It's like in, in our society today, especially our social media society, it seems like we only have one of two positions, right? We either agree completely, or you're going to hell right? It's like, there's no in-between. But the truth is, none of us are omniscient. And Paul is here saying, you know, hey, stand firm where the Bible is firm. Stand resolute on these core truths of our faith. Don't back down. Don't waver. Don't move with our culture, with society. But on some of these other things, you need to show grace. You need to show patience to the people. Realize that people are in process, that God is working on us, that he is sanctifying us daily to make us more like Christ. Okay, let's finish out this passage. Verse 17. He begins, brothers, by the way, I didn't mention this, but he's, he's used that word, brothers, or could be brothers and sisters, uh, three times in this passage. It's like verse 1. Verse 13, verse 17. It's like he keeps reminding them he's not writing as, uh, as someone to people that he, that he doesn't know, that he doesn't have any relationship with. No, he loves these people. And so the instructions that he gives to them are really, they have like a fatherly tone to them, very pastoral. And in verse 17, he says, Brothers, join in imitating me. This isn't the first time that Paul has said something like this. Right? He said in other places, follow me as I follow Christ. Join in imitating me. You know, it's funny, our daughter Sloane, she's two and a half, and um, man, she is hilarious. Um, but <laughs> she has this baby doll that uh, for a while just went everywhere with her. And Sloane's very literal in the name she gives her babies. When she was younger, she had three babies. They were three different sizes. Their names were small, medium, and large. <laughs> no joke. She has another set of babies. We got a lot of baby dolls at our house. Another set of babies, they're twins. And one has like a pink shirt, one has a blue shirt. Their names, pink and blue, right? <laughs> so pink has been the favorite doll for a while, and pink would go everywhere with her. And it's funny because we'd see her around the house and Sloane would be like disciplining Pink. She'd be saying, no Pink, no, you got to eat that. You know, and it, it's like, this is the same thing we, we say to you. And she doesn't listen when it comes from us, but, but here she is telling her, telling her baby doll. She's imitating us, right? She's just doing what she sees. And Paul is here writing to the church 
and he's saying, join in imitating me. I think it's a convicting verse because the question for all of us as Christians, as followers of Christ, is can, can we say that? Could, could we write to our friends and our family and our church and say, you know what, if you want to follow Christ, just, just do what I do. It's the most basic way to disciple people. Paul wasn't perfect. You don't have to be perfect to disciple someone. Somebody's given the definition of discipleship as this. He said, discipleship is one beggar telling another beggar where he found bread. And it's true. Join in imitating me, Paul says, but that's not all that he says. He says, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. He's saying, look, I'm not the only one. There's a lot of good examples. So Paul's saying, don't think that I think I'm the only one worthy of following. There's a lot of other good examples that you can follow. But, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies of the cross of Christ. The cross separates people. The cross creates unlikely friends. And I think that's a beautiful picture of how we come together for worship on Sunday, especially a church like ours, where we have people from so many different backgrounds and so many, so many different nations even on Sunday morning. The cross creates unlikely friends, right? There's no other reason for people from such a diverse mix of backgrounds and ethnicities to be in one room together. The cross also creates unlikely enemies. Jesus said that, right? I come to bring peace but a sword, separate father from son, mother from daughter. These people walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. But Paul's not happy about this. He says, I'm telling you now, even with tears, it, it, it breaks his heart. But listen to how he marks these false examples, these examples that we are to reject. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And Paul here is not listing specific sins. You know, he's not saying these Five things. You know, this is what they're doing. But he's, he's describing a general outlook, a general mindset of these people. And he's saying their God is their belly, meaning self-indulgence, right? Whatever that means for you. Because maybe it means something different for you than it does for me or you. He's saying there's, there's no restraint. They just live to satisfy their own pleasures. And he says this, and they glory in their shame. It's this reversal of morality, right? Like the things that should make them ashamed, they're the things that they're glorying in. And man, we see that in our, in our culture today. The things that, that we should be ashamed to talk about, ashamed to see. Culture saying, you don't have to just accept this, you have to celebrate this. And that's what these teachers were doing. And their minds are set on earthly things. They live only for the moment. They live only for the here and now. They live only for the temporal. He's saying reject those examples. And in contrast to that, we'll finish out the passage. Verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. Remember the first week of this study, we talked about the city of Philippi, right? That the people that lived there were granted Roman citizenship, right? That it was this thing that they were, they were proud of, right? We are citizens of Rome. 
with all the rights and privileges that went along with that, just as if they lived in Rome. Here they lived in Philippi. This was something to be proud of, and Paul, I don't think it's a coincidence that here in Philippians, he says, you know what? We're citizens of heaven. That's what we need to be looking for. That's where our focus needs to be. And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's a lot of things that we think about when we think about heaven. But the greatest thing about heaven is not the mansions, right? The streets of gold, the family members that we'll see there. The greatest thing about heaven, that's where Jesus is. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. While we wait here, we must live as if we are there, right? We're not there yet, but we live as if we were. And when we see Jesus, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And I love this line, by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. This immense power, this incomprehensible power, to subject all things to himself. You think about what that means for God to be in charge of everything. You think about the forces of nature. You think about the hearts of men. The Bible says that the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. Spiritual forces. All of that is in subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, I think, what the Apostle John meant when in Revelation chapter 11 he said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. This is our hope. This is our confidence. This is why we can rejoice. And if you're a follower of Christ, this is where your focus must be. Our confidence is in the righteousness of Christ. Our focus is on seeing Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the fact that your, your word brings light to our minds. I pray that you would make us people of your word, that you would make us more like Christ, that you'd bring us back on Sunday to worship together again. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.